Hi everyone, this is a very special podcast episode with Ronnie Screenwala. Um, we've been trying to do this for a very long time, but serendipity make it ha- made it happen right now. Um, through this Network Capital podcast, we try and dive deeper into people's career and uh, figure out why they do what they do. So let's get started, Ronnie. Very excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And I think you used one of my favorite words, which is serendipity. Strong believer in that amongst many other things. Where um, when people ask you, well, why did you start doing this? Or why are you focusing on this? And normally at least 50% of that is serendipity. Yeah, you think so? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, so uh, tell me about the time of growing up. I've actually read your book uh, two times. Um, you were you made entrepreneurship happen in a way like a lot of your childhood so walk us through your childhood days were you always curious was entrepreneurship something you were actively thinking about no i don't think entrepreneurship was something i was actively thinking about but i came from a sort of lower middle class uh, family um but we had pretty much a little bit of what we wanted um but i could see a level of aspiration and a level of ambition in me that was restless that maybe i discovered at an early stage in my life Uh, and I, I think by the time I went to college, I was definitely restless enough to want to do something. Um, so I think what came to me first is, do I want to work for somebody or do I want to work for myself? And in the first three months of me doing a transitory job, I think it came to me that I'm not someone who may be able to implement somebody else's vision. So I better have the guts to figure out my own. Why is that? Were there anything? No, I think it's just a realization Now that realization I definitely can't say at that time it was anything it was not overconfidence but there was a certain sense of confidence that said I think I want to do it in a particular manner the the beauty or the non beauty or the challenge of it I think was uh, if you ask me at that stage so what is it that I wanted to do I wasn't that clear but I knew that that's what I that I wanted to do something my own I and mean, most people when they get into entrepreneurship today they feel I've got a great idea and I have to say I have no idea um but I was very clear I wanted to be an entrepreneur. One were you a good student? In school I was a good student in college I was a lousy student. I mean lousy as in defocused. Uh I, I guess if I focused maybe I would have been a good student but I just didn't want to give it the attention. It didn't hold my attention. Um it was early days also for me to understand that the whole education system actually in many ways you went go into a classroom you want to feel competitive you want to feel participative right. you want to feel involved you don't want to have a you don't if if someone's going to read out a chapter to you or is going to read out four lessons to you then you might as well do it on your own time just didn't feel challenged wonderful and i think you know cut to 30 years later when i'm now looking at online education i think what i felt there obviously didn't think i was going to do something that's going to try and make an impact or change education overall and learning but it's definitely stands there that i can cut to both sides and see nothing's fixed on that side in your book you also talk about uh, like your household per se or your neighborhood uh, how did that contribute or do you have any memories of oh, its contribution of very good memories of my very early days actually which was in a place called grand road in mumbai which if you go in there is still one of the most crowded places yeah. um yeah i think it gives you a sense of grounding it gives you a very sense of realism uh, and those are things that just stay with you and you know even now i think uh, in the last 4 or 5 years if i think i've evolved in my second innings <clears throat> hopefully with a bank balance that i didn't have because i think almost the last 7 years i was always on borrowed capital including personal borrowed capital 
Right. So this perception that it, you know there was a sense of well. Do you want to explain that more? A lot of our audience are not from India, so they might not. Yeah. Know. No, I think the point is that you know I, I founded the company, but it, you know when you're finding your founding your own company and you're raising money and you're not you're not taking a liquidity event. I don't think I, I sold a single share of the company more or less by and large uh, for almost till the time when one sold it. So the result that you've got paper wealth, but you know you're still borrowing money for your for your daughter's education. Um, uh, and I stayed in a rental apartment for almost the better part of my life till maybe the last eight, ten years. Right. So I think the reflection there grounds you. And I think what we're doing today with our foundation, our Swadesh Foundation in rural India, um, is pretty similar to that side of me keeps me grounded. Because you're staring at reality all the time. In that you interact with Amit Chandra and... Uh uh, he's one of our members, our advisory yeah, members yeah. on the he's board. He's also going to be on the podcast, yeah, actually. He's, he's so. one of our uh, advisory members on the board. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, uh, jumping guns and actually going back. So, you grew up, you realized that you wanted to be an entrepreneur. How did you actually start? Um, I think I started on the basis of earning pocket money. I think that's what it is. I would say the... The germ of it came from my theater days, which was a non-professional activity. It was an amateur activity. But in college? In college? Yes, in college. Mostly in college. And that's the time when we would do weekend theater. Mm-hmm. And I became a producer of weekend theater. So I would act, but I would also produce the plays that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So that sort of gets you your first sense of earning of money. Yeah. Um, and I used to do a lot of front of television um, hosting. Right. Again... To me, they were absolute passion projects. So you were always a good communicator. I think because of my theatre training, I was definitely, I was blessed with being a good communicator. Yeah. So I think those were the ones that kind of gave me a certain sense of income that made me feel comfortable that I will get by come what may. Right. And uh, then, so what did you do? And then I think uh, there was no definition of media and entertainment at that stage. I think the first business Which year are we talking about? This was... Many, many years back. So it's about 1980s. Oh, wow. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, there was no concept of venture capital, angel investment, you know, what everyone here thinks is, I need an ecosystem to support me. There was no concept about debt. There was right. no question about going to a bank. And there was absolutely no question about a single angel, yeah. forget a devil, wanting to fund you even one rupee or one dollar. Mm. So when you take that coefficient out, it actually forces you to implement in a very different way. Yeah. I think the first business business that one did was cable television. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which year are we talking about now? Uh, early 80s. Early 80s. Early right. 1980s. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's pretty much what it was. Then came an opportunistic business uh, in toothbrushes, completely mm-hmm. diverse from, yeah. from what I was doing. Because there. you talk about it in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, do you mind like recounting some big lessons of pivoting from cable to toothbrushes like what was driving you it wasn't pivoting it was augmenting augmenting yes it was not pivoting because um, I remember reading about the factory visit that you did yeah yeah I mean yes exactly that I was in the UK accidentally with my dad uh, and he was visiting a factory because he was he was professionally the managing director of a company that also made hairbrushes outside of Nivea cream at that stage um, and pretty much it was opportunistic. Somebody was discarding some second-hand machines, which in India would be looking like brand new machines. <laughs> and it just sounded like an opportunity to do. So at that stage, when you're naive and you're curious, you can take a lot of impulsive decisions. And yeah. today when people ask me about gut, and I'm saying the gut that I applied on my business 30 years back and the gut I apply to any decision-making process today, there's a world of difference. Right. It's still gut. Yeah. Absolutely no question about it. And you have to go with gut. But today it's a much more evolved gut. 
And I think gut is not about waking up in the morning and just having a eureka moment and say, I'm going to go for it. Right. Or being bold enough to feel and say, yeah, this I'm going to go with my gut. Mm -hmm. That just sounds like the right thing to do. But gut is an evolution process. It's mm -hmm. a combination of all your experiences, a combination mostly of your failures yeah. that gets you to get your right gut. So you came back uh, from England. Yeah. So I think the toothbrush activity was, yeah, it was serendipity, mm -hmm. as you would put it. Um, because, you know, I wasn't looking for a business opportunity. We were still but you found on. one. But many people would have just found it and moved yes, on. But, but you didn't. Yes. So that's serendipity. That's... See, what is luck? Luck is being the right place at the right time. Okay? But the point is, you can't be lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time unless you've created multiple opportunities to be in multiple right places at multiple right times. Right. That's when like, luck will strike. So you've got to simulate that context. So I think serendipity played a role. Here was an opportunity. Yes, 50% serendipity placed itself. So 50% I grabbed the opportunity. Yeah. Um, but to me, I was not somebody who felt I was going to be a conveyor belt manufacturing kind of situation. So the first thing I did was get co-founders, and then we built the business from there. I was obsessed with scale, with whatever I wanted to do. Why? Why was scale important know. to you? I don't know. It I, has I, always been. I mean, if you look at your yeah, entire career. I don't, I don't have a logical answer, but I guess for me, even when I'm looking at things in my second innings today, whether it's in the rural sector or in the not-for-profit sector. Or I in the ed tech space? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, all of them, to me, without scale, especially when you're living in a country like India, and I think that's part of my grounding that happened when I was as a lower middle class and when I'm working in rural India, is that we have to solve problems at scale. There's no choice. Right. So if you look, as an entrepreneur, you need to have your own, uh, you know, um, barometers, parameters, whatever you want to call them. One of them is you don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Because if you feel that way, then you just push harder. Yeah. It's the, it's the exit signs in rooms and doors that distract a lot of people. It's the glass ceilings that distract a lot of people. Mm -hmm. How did you go about finding your, or what has been your principle of principles of partnerships? Some of... Uh, when you say partnership, you mean as Like co-founders co -founders or getting the right people to do so the I right job? There have been multiple, I mean, so there have been almost with all the businesses, whether it's in, in, in UTV, in our media company, and now in, in, in Upgrade, in our tech company, or... Uh, in your non-profit work? Uh, well, the non-profit is one where it's a family-supported one, hmm. so there isn't any scope. I can't bring in a partner in that context, yeah. but even in our sports business right. that we've got, yeah. I have a co-founder. So I think that's one element of partnership, where I felt the reason I did it the first time around is because I wanted a sense of high level of ownership. The reason I've done it the second time around with co-founders is because I didn't personally want to run a company. Hmm. So there were different reasons at different stages for a co-founder. But then... In each of our businesses, we've also partnered brilliantly. So, I mean, even in the media business from, you know, News Corp to Disney to Bloomberg, we've had long-term partnerships. So, I think that, that comes with uh, understanding your strengths, understanding and having a lot of mutual respect and trust. Yeah. Um, you know, I really like the uh, process of intuition that you spoke about, like essentially getting better at decision-making through continual feedback. You know, in your book, you describe uh, a particular scene in New York. I think there was this negotiation that you were dealing with with a potential partner. Um, Bloomberg. With, with yeah. Bloomberg at yeah. that time, yeah. So do you, like the way you were making decisions then and the way you're making decisions now, um, how is it different in practical terms? It and how less does it baggage at that time. I think I have more baggage with me now. And I have to figure out how to get a little bit more... Footloose and Francie. 
it, it was less baggage because uh, there were no preconceived notions. Today, I just feel onerous that my decisions need to land a little bit more in the positive than in the negative side. At that time, if it didn't, it didn't. That's one part. But I think um, at that stage, the stakes were higher. Right. Today, I'm looking at things where if it, you know, if it didn't work, it wouldn't be the end of anything else. At that time, when I was building something ground upwards as a first-generation entrepreneur, that made a big difference. So I think the stakes were higher, mm-hmm. but the naivety was high also. And I think now the naivety is less. That that means you've got a little bit more baggage mm-hmm. on your own preconceived notions of how people should look at you, how you want to get positioned. Uh, but the stakes are low. Do you think success? This is the downside of getting successful. That no. your decision making is like has. No, that's a very personal thing. Uh, I think that's a very personal thing. Uh, I'm driven every single day, and success is changing the barometers. If you if you, if you have a success definition that is stakes, uh, status quo, that's a problem in the first place. So I think I'm pretty driven. I'm just saying that the stakes are lower in a very matter-of-fact way. Right. Which means that if I'm looking, it, but it's advantageous because when the stakes are lower um, and the expectation is high, your ability to negotiate actually is even better. Yeah. So the outcome should be more positive. Understood. Um, you know, in uh, like you mentioned the term second innings uh, yeah. several times yeah. here. There are a couple of London-based professors who've written this book, Hundred Year Life. which talks about the fact that how people will essentially have to reinvent themselves multiple times Absolutely. in order to be relevant Absolutely. today. Absolutely. So talk to us about the principles in which you are trying to reinvent yourself but or you have reinvented yourself. What I'm yourself. doing in my second innings with Upgrad yeah. and online learning is pretty much that. Do you want to tell people what Upgrad so, is? Well, it's a, it's an online learning company. Uh, I think by now we're now the largest in India and we will go global. Uh, but essentially right now it's a It's a hundred percent online courses that go from nine months to to fifteen months. Diplomas, degrees, certification, pretty high output. We charge about four thousand dollars per student. We expect them to do ten to fifteen hours of very good hard work online. But a I week, think, yes, a week. And I think what we've invested in outside of content and the platform and the technology, which we are proud of, is really the learning experience and the outcomes. And I think education change will happen there. And today, I think more than ever before, education is no longer an event. It's oh, no absolutely! Longer, it's no longer I'm in college and this is what I need. It's no longer an event. Yeah, it's no longer an insurance policy either. It's not that you once you get it, like <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And I'm glad you use the word insurance because in India, we're the most underinsured company in the world. So the mindset of the urgency of lifelong learning, along with the urgency of even something like as basic as insurance, right, is still very low. So it's a it's a massive challenge for what we want to do. So through upgrade, so yes, you were telling us about the principles of reinvention. I think um, for me, people have asked, you know, from media and entertainment to education. I'm saying, yeah, what's what's the situation? You have to reinvent yourself. And I think the principles for me was, if I want to build something in education, building a brand and building credibility is important. I think yeah. that's what I did in media and entertainment, and building a brand and building credibility in media is equally important. And second, I think um, learning is a storytelling. Yeah, I mean, if you go back and talk to most people, what are your best memories in college, university? It's case studies, hundred percent. It's storytelling. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, storytelling not in a flippant manner, in a deep, which means that you've got to make learning an exciting and thrilling. Yeah, the underlying moment. narrative behind the concept. Yep. So, to me, reinventing some of what I'm doing using those strengths for the next one is pretty important. And at the core of what we're saying in Upgrad is. Every three to four years, you will have to pivot. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean you need to do a hundred and eighty degree pivot, but if you don't augment, 
you don't have to change from absolutely X to Y. Yeah. You may say, but I'm, you know, an accountant, how am I going to be an engineer? Sure, but you have to augment mm -hmm. into whatever else. Because I think it's not even about being specialization. You're going to have to be a specialist and a generalist at the same time. I don't think there's going to be room for people to be so specialist sitting in meeting, room, meeting rooms. And, you know, people may say the gig economy is there and I'm going to work less hours and more. I think the jury's out on how all of that is going yeah. to pan out and come about. Yeah. So I think clearly I'm pivoting, I'm reinventing, but I'm forcing every learner of us to also reinvent in their career. Right. What are some challenges that come about when you try to reinvent yourself? This is not just a question for you, but like what you've seen in Upgrad and other... Mindsets, normally. Mindset is a big one. It's easier said than done, right? Yeah, absolutely easier said than done. I'm saying absolutely easier said than done. I mean, most people would feel intimidated. Uh, most people think, my God, this sounds like... But if the point is, if you, if you don't realize that if you are doing that, it's going to require an effort. Yeah. Like, I need to enjoy the fact that I'm doing something all over again, where at least 50% of what I'm doing today, I did 20 years back as a task in yeah. a different manner yeah. at a different scale but as a task okay now I can say you know I want to be the executive chairman of Upgrad so why do I have to do five other things that I did this is what I did 20 years back I hmm. sat down we sat down designed a program now I don't want to do that we should get experts but I think that's part of reinventing hmm. yourself hmm. and rolling up your sleeve so you need to acknowledge the fact that you will be comfortable saying I'm starting from scratch yeah humility whether it's in a job or whether it's in an entrepreneurship or a business venture uh, talk to you about failure and reinvention. Like in your very successful career, I'm sure. Like no, no, you've my book has been written primarily because <laughs> yeah. of failure. Yeah. So, like when you reinvent yourself, um, it is humbling, and then failures can really sometimes sure. drive you down. Yeah. So, uh, how have you high. dealt and with the stakes it? Stakes are even high because after there's a perception that you've succeeded. The mo for a lot of people to reinvent themselves, failure also plays a big role in the whole thing. That says, why do I want to expose myself? I've gotten by and created a little halo around me. Now, why do I need to, if the next one doesn't work, that even my first one will be a distant memory and I'll be remembered more for my failure than my success. Yeah. Recency effect, people of remember. Course, it always is. It yeah. always is. So, but, but, you know, that's, that's the fun. That's the challenge. And either you have to enjoy it or you're intimidated by it. Yeah. But I think today, even if you're intimidated by it, it's a myth that you think that, okay, I arrived so I can retire. I mean, the word retire is a 20th century word today. I don't, yeah. think, I don't think anyone can really retire. I mean, there are a lot of people who say, I'm going to sell my company when I retire. You have to be able to figure out some different vocation, what you're going to do. Yeah. Because I don't, think that, I don't think that 21st century allows you to feel that you can sit on a beach for the rest of your life. Hypothetically, even if one were financially stable for the rest of one's life, I think work gives meaning to what yeah, you yeah, do. Yeah, work is so important. Game. Yeah. You can have impact. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, my wife spends 100% of the time on our not-for-profit. Yeah. And we, you know, we're working with a million people in rural Maharashtra. It's a very scalable model. Now, we may say, you know, at this age and stage, why do we want to hire 300 people? Why do we want to take such long-term commitments? Yeah. Yeah. Now, is that work or is that philanthropy or is that whatever else? It's just part of, it's part of what you want to do. And right. I think if I can describe my second innings, I think I've been blessed enough that, you know, when you're a first-generation entrepreneur, I think 70% of what you're building a business, you have to do and 30% you want to do. Yeah. And I've tried in my second innings to see that at least closer to 100% is what I want to do and yeah. what I want to have to do. I see. And that, I think, gives me the charge and the turbo for maybe doing different things. Understood. And um, one is doing different things. So I think the other part I would say here is, like everyone says, multitasking. I think it's completely overrated. Tell me more. Because it's simply that 
it's the, it's the worst thing for anyone. To but do. you know, I mean, I have to confess when I read your book and like like um, to me it seems like you are somebody who multitasks. No, no, you don't multitask. No, I don't multitask. Because a multitask situation means at any given time you're doing two or three things. Right now I'm having this conversation with you. I'm not turning away and having the sandwich, nor am I sitting here and ch- checking my phone. The right. multitask problem comes in by using this technology. I mean, I just walked out of the seminar here that both of us were uh, looking at and attending, and there were 50 people listening to a panel of three people. 45 people of them were on the mobile. Yeah. And I'm thinking, why are they even sitting here? And that's multitasking, and that's right. to me different. Yeah. So I may be looking at three or four different things that I want to create for impact, but my focus is have I got the right co-founders in place, have I got the right team in place, do I know what my right role is, mm-hmm. and on a given day, do I have a right agenda of what I want to do. But at that time, yeah. I think the multitask concept comes in because we've mixed the past, the present, and the future. Yeah. But I think if you're living in the I present... I love the way you put it, yeah. I think if you're living in the present, how can you multitask? Yeah. So you do, you've always tried to be, be yes. here now. Yeah. Yeah, I think, <coughs> now, let's be very clear. Everyone's report card will have 10 to 20% of deviation. Yeah. But by and large, that's what that's what it is. So I think I'm definitely not a multitasker. Even though people feel, but you're, you're not for profit, Upgrad is your main source, you've got private equity. You've constantly shifted industries and the ability... No, I haven't shifted industries. Now, if I look at it, these are the five things that I'm looking at. But my main focus is building our online education company, Upgrad. Right. And my second most important thing is what we do with our not-for-profit. But outside of that, I own four sports teams in different locations from Kabaddi and uh, volleyball and table tennis yeah. to... How sport. did that come about? Uh, again, 25% serendipity <laughs> and 75% then the guts to... Luck surface area. I lo- the way you talked about luck, it's basically serendipity happens to a lot of people, but people are not able to translate serendipity into... No, you need into, to be out there. Yeah. You need to be out there. Yeah. You need to be out there and you need to create situations and multiple opportunities for, for it to strike. Luck is in retrospect. It's yeah. not at that moment. Right. Of course. Uh, Woody Allen says something very interesting. Half of life is showing up. The other half you have to decide. Yeah, but I think he was writing that more as a script. <laughs> Absolutely. It just sounded more poignant on, on a, in a movie script. That is true. Movies do that, by the way. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about tell, uh, like a bit of serendipity in the sports team, but uh, have you come to like learn the learn more about the industry, enjoy the process? Yes, I mean, again, people have asked me, but you don't... So which sport did you play in school uh, School and college? I said, actually, you know, I wasn't really a sports person. I was more into theater, drama, debates. Yeah. Uh, that's what I pursued. So no, I didn't play any... Did you play table tennis? No, but you want a league uh, in table tennis. You want a league in volleyball. You want a league in kabaddi. And you want a league in esports. Hmm. I said, yeah, no, because to me, these are all disruptive sports. We're dealing with completely new talent. And now we're going to figure out how to build those sports, build the teams, and be part of an ecosystem that's doing that. And that's what excites me. That's exciting. Um, coming to India, lots, lots of changes going on in India. How, when you were building the non-profit, of course, your wife has a pivotal role in it. Uh, how did you decide to double down on the problem? And uh, what's your uh, thesis of change or theory I of change? Think, uh, for the not-for-profit, we were doing this for the last 20 years at a very small scale. A, because we didn't have the resources or the money. So when we had a liquidity event with an exit from the sale of our company, uh, we were at a good crossroad that says, what do we want to do for our not-for-profit? My, my first context was scale. 
the second context. So the next one year, we, we met about 400 NGOs, traveled the length and breadth of the country, went even to Bangladesh and looked at some very inspiring models there, and then came to some basic conclusions that we didn't want to cut a check for somebody else. We wanted to do it ourselves. We wanted to be an execution foundation. We felt everything that we were doing in health, education, water, sanitation, and livelihood, all these five facets are extremely interconnected. So we wanted to do a holistic model. Right. And most of where we found is that a lot of people are doing phenomenal work in the social space, but have been just doing it for 20 years and 30 years yeah. in the same place, the same geography, the same school, with the same group of people. And I'm saying, but how, how could we all be doing that? Because we have to measure impact and then we have to move on. If you're not empowering and you're not exiting something, then what's the point? So those are the fundamentals in which we sort of looked at it, between scale, executing ourselves, holistic 360-degree model, and putting our money where our mouth is. No, and you've clearly done that. But what's keeping you up at night? You've, you're, of course, happy with the progress. I have to say, I, I don't mean to sound at all uh, impudish or whatever else. I don't think in an in a overall sense that word, that phrase again is something that's quite... You're not supposed to be up at night. That is true. <laughs> you're, not, you're not supposed to be up at night. Yeah. Otherwise, that's like, then you need to ask me, well, what get, gets you up, you know, what gets you, bounce you out of bed the, yeah. bed the next morning? I'm saying, hello, you just asked me what keeps me up at night. If I'm keeping <laughs> out of bed, how do you expect me to bounce out of bed? Fair so, enough. So make up your mind. Do you want me yeah. to bounce out of bed in the morning or do you want me to keep up all night? I want you to bounce out of bed. Exactly, and I want to do the same. <laughs> so um, what's your advice to people who are in college and just entering the workforce, maybe somebody who wants to um, uh, think about his or her career? You know, I think there's a lot of social uh, pressure when it comes to India. Yeah. And we need to deal with that. And, and, and parents need to deal with that and kids need to deal with that also. Because otherwise that can create a very debilitating... You need support systems when you need to go out there. There are no guarantees of jobs tomorrow. Yeah. Um, starting off in your own business requires a lot of gumption. Personally, if you ask me in India, I think we have to go many miles for our ambition levels and our aspirational levels in this country to be much higher than they need to be. And I mean, I'm saying this as a general sweeping statement because I think a majority of people, we need to take our ambition and aspirations level very high. There may be a few handful people that represent, you know, and everyone feels we're a very jugad country. Jugad in India means shortcuts. It really doesn't mean, you know, yeah. frugal innovation. Right. 10% of what we do in India in jugad is frugal innovation. 90% is shortcuts. And that's bad. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there is there is something that I think requires some work. Yeah. So students should not try to do take the shortcuts or young professionals. And I think they need to be very clear of what they want to do. I think people need to pick up experience if you want if you feel instinctively. Uh, but you know, it's we don't we don't have too many role models in this country. I'm afraid because of there's such a lack of role models, I think we stick on to many wrong role models also. Mm. And I think that's you need to be careful about that. Mm. I think if you you need experience, if you're starting off on something on your own, small, bigger, and thing, I think pick up a little bit more experience. If you're starting something, don't expect any birthright. That if I'm not getting funded, I'm not going to start. That's mm. a fallacy. Mm -hmm. um, but I think if you're picking a professional career, you know, without being an advertorial prolab grad, all I would say is you need to understand that every three or four years you have to reinvent yourself. Harari talks about it in his book and many people have written. No, this is uh, this has been truly fascinating. Thank you so much for Thank your time. You. I mean, this will go out to 100,000 subscribers that we have okay, good. and we would love to see what we can do together. Sincerely appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.